Good morning, church. As Jay said, open your Bibles to Matthew 19 or grab a Bible in front of you and turn there. It's been a few weeks, but we are jumping back into Matthew. And we will look at the story of the rich young ruler this morning, beginning in verse 16. A little under the weather this week, but trust the Lord will use His Word ultimately in my weakness. Most of my weakness because He is strong. Now, it's important as you're opening up your Bibles to note the connection between what we're going to read, beginning in chapter 19, verse 16, all the way back to chapter 18. As you'll remember, back in 18, at the beginning in verses 1 through 4, Jesus said that we must become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jace taught us well that this means that we must humble ourselves in needy, helpless Dependence, just like a little child does that to their parents. And just before our passage this morning in Matthew 19, look at verse 14. Jesus rebuked the disciples for rejecting literal children and reiterated that the kingdom belongs to them, to the helpless, to the needy. Whether you're a child, whether you're an adult, to recognize your dependence, your need, your brokenness, the kingdom belongs to you. Mark and Luke also place the story of the little children coming to Jesus and Jesus accepting the little children right before this story of the rich young ruler, purposefully to show a sharp contrast, the little child and this great rich young ruler. In all this, we have a theme. Jesus is teaching the disciples who belongs to the kingdom of heaven, and guess what? It's not who they expect. They, they see these little children, and they want to reject them. And Jesus says, uh-uh, uh-uh you've be, you got to become like them if you want to ever enter the kingdom of heaven. They see this rich young ruler, and they stand up straight and go, oh, this guy, yeah, we want him part of, our, <laughs> we want him part of the kingdom. Maybe, he can, maybe if we have 13 disciples, maybe he can join us here too. And Jesus rejects him. And what's clear and primary here is that being part of the kingdom, being saved, has nothing to do with human achievement, or social status, or rank, which is what we see in this rich young man that we will read about. It's all, salvation is all of divine mercy. So let's look now to Scripture, to God's Word, and read of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, and hear and see this. Beginning in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for My name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your revealed word to us. And we ask that you would reveal it to us once again, illumine our minds to understand it. May your living, active word pierce our hearts, cause us to believe it, to obey it, sober us, convict us as needed, and help us to respond in repentance and faith as we are called to do. All this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus is a master teacher, right? And he has several important lessons in this story related to entering the kingdom and the cost of the kingdom and the great gain of the kingdom. So we will study this passage under three points and we'll begin with the cost of the kingdom. The cost of the kingdom, point number one, the cost of the kingdom, verses 16 to 22. We're introduced here in verse 20 to a young man. Verse 22, a young man who had great possessions, Or if you look over in Luke, Luke tells us that he is a ruler, likely a Jewish official at a synagogue or part of the Sanhedrin. So what do you do? You put all these accounts together and you get a rich, young ruler coming to Jesus. And go read Mark's gospel. And Mark begins this story with this rich, young ruler enthusiastically coming to Jesus. It says he, Mark says that this is a ruler runs up to Jesus and kneels down before him. So I think we can say this is a rich, young, enthusiastic, or ambitious ruler. I was studying this this week, and I just the thought that came to mind, the memory that came to mind was when I come home from working here at the office, just about every day, what happens is I open my back door and I walk in, and what do my eyes behold? What am I greeted with? My three little boys holding up papers or Legos or something and earnestly trying to outdo one another in asking questions wide-eyed. Daddy, what's for dinner? Daddy, can I show you something? Daddy, can I tell you all about this book that I read today? And then just start telling me about it anyway. But question after question after question after question, enthusiasm. I think there's a picture there of what, how this man approached Jesus. Wide-eyed, earnest, he had this nagging question in his heart. And here's Jesus, uh, here's my chance. I'm going to go run to him, kneel before him, ask him this question that I've had. What a moment. And here in verse 16, here's the man's question. He says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do? Alarm bells should be going off, right? Good deed that you must do. Hmm, it's not about the good deeds. 
Talk about an evangelistic moment. Guy with enthusiasm bowing down. Have you ever had somebody come up to you, bow down before you, and ask you a question and just wait, wait, pins and needles for your answer? We pray for opportunities like this. Note how Jesus responds, though. He doesn't dismiss the man. Oh, what a bad question. You can't earn your way. Dismiss you. He doesn't say, he doesn't cut right to the chase and say, you can't do anything good. You need a Savior. Let me tell you about it. Jesus looks at this man. He lovingly leads him along. He shepherds him. Watch what he does here. He's going to go to this man's heart. And he's going to do it with surgical precision. He's going to challenge him. Jesus only makes a few statements, but he's going to confront the man's idolatry. He goes straight to his heart. Leave it to Jesus in the blink of an eye to expose a man's heart in you know, two minutes of a conversation. And he finds that this man's heart is consumed with self and wealth. First, verse 17, he responds to this man with another question. He questions the man on why he's asking Jesus about what is good. The man, the man sees Jesus as a religious teacher, not as God, but as a religious teacher. In other Gospels, he calls him a good teacher. But Jesus is pointing out to him, I don't think you know what that word means. You don't know what that word really means. You think you know what good and goodness means. You don't. That's a relative term. There's only one person who is good, God only. And so the man, if you're going to ask Jesus what good deed to do, you must understand that God is perfectly good, that the person standing in front of you is God, and that centering your life on an empty pursuit of good deeds will not lead to eternal life. Jesus is reshaping his definition of good and goodness, and Jesus is turning this man from himself to God. Wait, before we can even begin, you've got to get this straight. There's only one person who is God, so I'm going to reshape your, your vision from self to God. That's, all, that's, that's for free, right? Jesus just initiates that response, and then he answers the man's question. Look at verse 17. He says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. Jesus is not guaranteeing that this man will be saved if he keeps all the commandments. He knows that, he just said, God's the only one who's good. God only. You're not good enough to be able to keep all the commandments. There's a, there's, a, there's a thing called sin that is a problem that is going to prevent you to do that. But what he's doing is he's, he's leading this man along. Okay, you want to play this? I'll, I'll play your game for a little bit. I'm going to jump into your moral framework. He points into what God has revealed, what is truly good in the law, all with the intent to test his heart. Jesus is testing this man's heart. The man doesn't get it. Which ones, he says? Which commandments, Jesus? So let's be clear here, Jesus. There are 613 commandments. Which, which ones are you talking about? Or do you have like 614? Do you have another additional one? I just want to, I want to be able to go do something. He says, which ones? He's just not quite sure he's done enough. So Jesus goes to the Ten Commandments. And notice, he doesn't, he doesn't mention the first four commandments that all talk about our relationship to God, right? Don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any other idols. He, he skips over those. Jesus goes right to commandments 5 through 9. These are the external or the observable commandments, things that you, people can see. They, people can see if you murdered somebody or if you committed adultery. That's, that's observable by and large. Jesus has more to say about that. But in many ways, these, are, these, these commandments relate to how we love our neighbor, how we love others around us. So the man didn't respond to being turned to God, so now Jesus turns him from self to 
to others. Okay, let's, let's look at how you treat others. Let's see how well you do at loving. You want to base yourself, your goodness on how well you obey. Let's look at how well you love your neighbor. But instead of saying to Jesus, Jesus, I've, I've tried, but I've messed up. I, I can't keep all these laws. Look at this man, verse 20. He says, I have kept all these laws. All these laws I have kept. In another gospel, he says, from my youth, since I was a boy, I have kept all these since I was a little boy. I think he missed Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which says that if you even have lust in your heart for another woman, you've committed adultery. So it's a little bit more than even just observable. In your heart, if you've had anger toward your brother, toward another, you've committed murder. Or what little boy has perfectly honored his father and mother. Can any of us in this room attest to, yeah, I, I perfectly honored my father and mother. You're not even doing that as a one-year-old, let alone whoever, however old this guy is. And so we see here, just, there's an arrogance to this man. I'm good. What, but what else do I have to do? So there's an arrogance. I'm good. But the what else do I have to do points at some insecurity. This man not quite sure he's done enough. He's uncertain. And Jesus pauses at this moment. This is the moment Mark says that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I don't know what you would have done in that moment. I know my temptation in that moment would have been like, I've tried. You're, you're just so stuck up and arrogant. I'm going to move on. I'm going to go find somebody else. Jesus, he knows, he sees right through this guy. But he looks at him and he loves him. And the man, he thinks he has it all, doesn't. And Jesus gets it. He's confronted with the loving, penetrating gaze of his Messiah. And those eyes cut to his heart with a clear command Jesus speaks up and he says, verse 21, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have, tre- you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. I, I don't care about the treasure you have right now. You will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Jesus says if you want to be perfect. He's not saying without sin. That word here means complete undivided, wholehearted devotion to God. You want to have wholehearted devotion to God. You must go and sell. And emphasis on the come and follow. You've got to turn and you've got to follow Jesus. This man is gripped by his wealth. He's consumed by his love for his wealth. That's ultimately going to keep him from turning and following Jesus. And we see this, there are, there are rich young rulers in all of us to some degree. There's rich young rulers in, our, in the world that we live in. Our, our society, our culture idolizes riches and wealth. Just watch TV, just turn on the internet. You watched the Super Bowl last week, we see it right there. The Super Bowl generates billions of dollars for teams, for media outlets, for restaurants. And of all places, you know where the Super Bowl was held this year, of all places in Las Vegas. So think about all the profits from casinos. Just think about the billions of dollars one weekend event 
generates. And you know what the cost of a 30-second ad in the Super Bowl is? And it goes up every year. $7 million. You want to get a 30-second ad in the Super Bowl, $7 million. We're consumed with wealth and with riches, and we idolize it. And I'm watching the Super Bowl, and there was one commercial, maybe you've seen it as well, one commercial that came on that stuck out to me. It was from a campaign called He Gets Us. He Gets Us. They've been doing campaigns since 2022 in, in Super Bowls, backed by $100 million. And this year they had a commercial that highlighted multiple people, kind of in more conservative dress, dress washing the feet of others who, let's just say, probably had more progressive ideals, were more on the leftist side. But you see these people bending down to wash their feet, those who might disagree with Christians, and yet these others are coming alongside and washing their feet. And the message we're supposed to get from the ad is that Jesus washed feet. Jesus was nice. Jesus gets us. Jesus showed love. He didn't teach hate. So we should be nice and show love. We should not teach hate. There's some truth. There's certainly some truth there. And this is a well-motivated spotlight, well-motivated ad in the Super Bowl to 123 million viewers, and it speaks the name of Jesus, right? But I'm watching this, and I think there's something missing here. This is the, this is not the gospel. This is something watered. This is a watered-down Jesus. You're, you're showing the name of Jesus, but I don't know what kind of Jesus this is. Jesus did wash feet. Jesus did spend time with tax collectors, but he also said a whole lot of things that eventually got him crucified that people did not like very much. And he willingly died because he gets us. He gets that we have a sinful nature and we need to change. And he loves us enough to call us to repent and to come to him on his terms, to his standards. Not, I'm going to come and I'm going to accept whatever ideology you have. Like, no, I'll come, I'll serve you, I'll love you, but you still, if you want to come to me, you must repent on my terms because he's Lord. And so when he encounters a rich, religious, ambitious, outwardly obedient man, believing he can earn his way into the kingdom, but consumed inwardly with the worship of possession, Jesus gets him, but then he, he confronts him, he challenges him, he doesn't lower his standards. I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to call you to repent. You cannot enter the kingdom without repenting and believing. And shockingly, he lets the man walk away. Because Jesus is not willing to lower his standards. I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how rich you are. I'm not going to lower my standards of how you enter the kingdom. This man is like many what C.S. Lewis called nice people, content in their niceness, but just as lost as anyone else. Here's my point. Everyone who truly encounters Jesus is confronted with their sin. And he puts a command and a call on each one of us to release whatever idols our heart is holding on to, the things we're gripped the most, to release those and devote ourselves to him. That's the cost of the kingdom. It's letting go. It's not money, it's letting go of sin and idols and grabbing, clinging, holding on to Jesus. Releasing our grip on the things that consume us, the other gods that we are worshiping, and coming to worship and submit to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that church, as you know, is a work of the Spirit. That's something we cannot do. We ask the Lord 
to open our eyes to the things that grip us, that we might let them go. And let me just assure you that when we do let things go, and we reach out and say, Jesus, I'm empty-handed now, as we just saying, I'm empty-handed, I just, can you take me? He's going to cling to us, and when we feel like we can't cling to Him anymore, He clings to us, and He holds us. And that is where true satisfaction is. This man's command was, go and sell. That is what he was to give up. That is what he was holding on tightly. He was to give up his possessions. And the man blinks. And sorrow fills his soul. Deep, that, the word sorrow, deep distress, anguish. Jesus has put his finger on what this man must give up to follow him with undivided devotion. Jesus knows the man has not loved his neighbor as himself. He's just revealed that he's chosen to love other gods namely money, namely possessions. He's broken the first commandment. His good deeds will never make him good enough. He needs Jesus' goodness. We need Jesus' goodness. We need His righteousness on our behalf. That's what this man needs. He needs what we call alien righteousness, somebody else's righteousness that he cannot have himself. Jesus says he needs to repent. How do you get that? You repent, you confess your neediness, you confess your sin, you see how your heart is not given fully to God. You turn from it. For this man, it was turning from his love of self and wealth and believing, turning to come and follow Jesus as his true disciple, humbly dependent on him for all his needs. That was the call to this man. Now, I think there are two errors we can, we can have when we come to a passage like this. A command from Jesus. Go and sell. That's a command, right? That's a command in the Bible. Are we supposed to follow that? Well, let's think about that. A couple of errors. I think one of them is to assume that that command is calling all Christians to sell their possessions. That leads to you know, a monk life. I'm just going to go off and avoid the world. I'm going to go off and avoid possessions. And I think that misses the stories of many in the Bible, such as Abraham and Job and David and Joanna and Lydia, people who had money and means and used it to bless other people. And Jesus didn't say, hey, you've got to go and sell all those things. He didn't. He didn't do those things. So Jesus' call was specific to this man and his individual need. He's not condemning wealth. The man's problem was his self-reliance and self-assurance. That said, here's another error. I think we can look at this passage, go and sell. We can listen to this command, and we can say, well, that does not apply to me. Well, I'll move on to the next command. It doesn't apply to me at all. It was just for this man. Well... Let's think about that one. There are some whose hearts are being choked by the thorns, the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And those are the ones who especially need to hear Jesus' call. As one commentator said, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. And so he may call some of us to give up possessions, to let go of friends or family or ungodly relationships or ungodly desires or behaviors or addictions or thought patterns, letting go, leaving behind. For others, he would call us not to give up, not to leave your wife behind, not to give up your possessions, your car, your computer, but to check your priorities and to realign. Let's, you know, let's think about work. Let's think about family. Let's think about possessions. Where are they at in the orbit of things? Are they ruling our hearts? So what we have to, church, continually ask ourselves is what has our heart? What's got our heart? 
And is it Christ? We can have the things of this world. We, we can enjoy the things of this world, but they cannot have our heart. What has our heart? Submitting to Christ's lordship is being ready to give up anything to trust Him. Even what tugs at our heart is something we can't seem to live without. We must stand ready to follow. So when Jesus comes, and He often doesn't come and tell us to give up everything, but if He were, if we were standing there and He said, go and sell, we must be ready to submit to Him as Lord. That's the cost of following Jesus. And for many, it's too great. It's, it's shocking to see this man receive a command from the king and not obey it and walk away sorrowfully. But many, like this young man, blind to their need, reject the cost and do not enter the kingdom. Let's look at point number two, entering the kingdom. Entering the kingdom, verses 23 to 26. Look at me with, again at verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Luke notes that Jesus said this as he's watching the man's sadness. And the disciples hear this as they are watching this man leave. This man that they said, ah, he had potential. He was ambitious. And they're watching him leave in sadness. And they're watching him gain the world but lose his soul. And so this is Jesus' response. But it's it's easy to water down what Jesus says here. Commentators jump through hoops trying to figure out what Jesus is actually saying here. There, one interpretation that, was, that made its rounds for the past hundred years that became very common was that Jesus was talking about something called the needle's eye gate, a gate in Jerusalem. And camels, if they wanted to get through the gate, they had to crawl and bend down on their knees and somehow inch their way through this gate. It was very, very difficult. But it could happen. It was difficult which is, it completely misses the point of what Jesus is saying. Jesus says it's impossible. You can't get a just take it for what Jesus says. You can't take a camel, humps and all, and put it through the eye of a little needle. It it cannot be done. It's ludicrous. Like, Jesus, what are you even saying? Ha ha, Jesus, okay, doesn't make sense. That's the point. This is impossible to do. And that explains the disciples' response. They say, in amazement, who can be saved? If that's what you mean, the big camel, how do you get a camel through it? I have no clue. So who can be saved? They're just, they're confused. Jesus has just said, insignificant little children, grimy little children with no social status can enter the kingdom. We're supposed to be like that. And they've just watched this rich young ruler walk away and Jesus not go after him. And they've grown up in a Jewish culture that saw riches as a sign of blessing, as a sign of favor from God. So if you were rich, you had favor with God. And so if someone like the rich young ruler can't be saved, what hope do they have? Fishermen and former tax collectors. Jesus is yet again showing the reversal of the kingdom. God chooses not according to worldly standards or power or noble birth, but he chooses many who are foolish, low, despised to shame the wisdom of the world. First Corinthians 1. And so the good news 
Because Jesus' response is good news. The good news is that what is impossible for man to earn salvation by doing enough of good things, by status, by riches, is possible with God. And he chooses to save the poor, the needy, the weak, as well as the rich who come to Christ in dependence. Human worthiness, it holds no water. You can't go to the kingdom of heaven someday and stand at the gates and say, I'm worthy. Look at all the good things I did, Jesus. Look at all these possessions that I have and I stewarded them well. You can't do it. Jesus, the gates close if that's how you're going to operate. You must say, my worth is not in these things and what I have done. My worth is in Jesus Christ and what He has done. And to do that, we need a new heart and we need perfect obedience given to us, counted to us. It's only the one whose eyes have been opened by the Spirit of God to see His sin laid on the bruised shoulders of Jesus Christ, suspended on the cross, and this person who sees that, who cries out in confession, in need, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you said that from your heart, it's because divine mercy drew you up from the pit of destruction, revealed your idols to you, and gave you a new heart to respond to Him in faith. And brothers and sisters, He has given us eyes to see who He is. That He will not forsake us, that He will provide for our needs, that He is the supreme treasure that is worthy of giving everything up for. Can a leopard change his spots? Can a bad tree produce good fruit? Can a natural person understand and accept the things of the Spirit of God? No, it's impossible. It can't happen. But Jesus does the impossible and changes who we are from the inside out in such a way that we can say, I am a child of God. I am not worthy, but you are worthy. May I enter the kingdom because of Jesus Christ and what He has done. And listen, are you here this morning and you, and you want to change? You want to change? Well, you can't do it. It's impossible. Emphasis on you. You can't do it. But the good news is that salvation and change is not a work that we do. It is a finished work Jesus has done. So we cry out to Him. We ask Him to do what is impossible for us to do. Salvation is from the Lord. From conversion to where we are now. Struggling against sin. Waiting for eternal glory. Seeing it. Crying out to God. And He says, I have forgiven your sin. Past, present, future. You aren't good enough but you are united to Jesus Christ. You are clothed in His righteousness. And I will produce the fruit that you cannot produce as you cling to me and complete dependence. And you, So you want to change? Cry out to God and ask for His help to do the impossible. And this hope is offered to all of us as a free gift. And when we offer it to others, salvation, change, We offer it as a free gift. We don't come and need to clean ourselves up. We don't need to pay money for this. It is a free gift. And we see that in Jesus' call to the rich young ruler. He said, come. The man is held responsible for his rejection and his love for his possessions was the clear barrier to entering the kingdom. And we need to take note, church. This teaching applies to us as some of the most wealthiest people in the world. If we know where our meal is coming Tomorrow, if we've got food in the fridge, we're some of the most wealthy people on earth. And Jesus says to the wealthy or to the poor who desire to be wealthy, He says, Matthew 6 on the Sermon on the Mount, 
Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A few verses later in verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Paul says to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Church, riches and possessions are gifts from God. What what did we just read? God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So everything we have, the food you're about to eat later today, the sunshine out right now, the snow on the ground, He gives us it all to enjoy it. And we thank Him for it. And it's good and right to enjoy the gifts He's given us with gratitude. Because we have a generous king who gives good gifts. T.J. Mahaney helpfully notes, though, that prosperity is a gift, but prosperity is also a test. He says that when we have, when we see an increase in finances or a promotion at work or increased favor among others, that it is far too easy for us to resume upon grace and fail to perceive the presence of pride in our hearts in the form of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and self-exaltation. The prosperous, like the rich young ruler, far too easily become self-sufficient, self-reliant, exalting themselves, and seeing no need for God. Presuming upon the grace God has poured out on them, and Jesus says the rich can become slaves to the riches. And he says, be aware of the danger of riches. So covenant of grace, do not be haughty. Do not set your hopes on the false security of possessions, whether you have them or whether you desire them. Perceive how easy it is to turn from worshiping the giver of all good things to setting our hopes on, to setting our love on, and worshiping the good gifts. Hold on to what we have loosely, with thanksgiving, with gratitude. Don't, May we never let what we have have us, have our hearts, rule us. And a, and a fruit that guards us from this love to money, to wealth, to possessions. Oftentimes it comes when, when we get a raise or when we're blessed with a gift. It's responding with joyful generosity. Springing from the generosity Jesus has shown us. Though he was rich, he became poor. So it's asking the question, Lord, thank you for this raise. Thank you for this gift. Should I save it? I can save it. I can spend it. I want to spend it. But would you have me bless somebody else and to be generous? This is a gift. Be generous with it. That my heart might not be captured by it. Whether I put it in this, your heart can be captured by putting money into savings or by spending it. And so we ask, Lord, how do I use this money in such a way where my heart's not attached to it? We do all this looking away from earthly treasures with our eyes on the great gain that awaits us, church. Let's look finally at point number three, the rewards of the kingdom. The rewards of the kingdom, speaking of great gain, verses 27 to 30, will be briefer. Our passage ends with a wonderful promise. 
Peter speaks up on behalf of the disciples once again and asks in verse 27, We have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? There there seems to be some trepidation here. Man, the rich young ruler didn't leave everything. We we left some things behind. I haven't seen my wife for a little while. I'm hoping to see her next Tuesday, but I haven't seen her for a little while. Those fishing boats that we were using all the time, they're sitting in the dock over that. We've, we've left things. Is there anything in it for us? We're just a bunch of fishermen and, and a tax collector. He and the, Peter and the disciples are still reeling from watching the rich young ruler, a great one, walk away. Perhaps Peter felt like God owed them something because of their decision to follow him. Jesus doesn't correct that here, but he will next week in his parable. Any gain is from the Father's benevolent hand. Let's get that straight. God doesn't owe you anything. It's his benevolent hand that gives us anything. But Jesus replied to every one of his disciples here, to these disciples and to us, is the encouragement we need as we make sacrifices for the kingdom. Look at verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you you who have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. First, Jesus says his disciples will judge Israel. It's not clear if Jesus is literally speaking about these twelve disciples, judging Israel at the end of all things, at the consummation for their unbelief, or whether he's pointing to what... The rest of the New Testament talks about when all believers will somehow judge the nations. But what is key to note is that Jesus says his kingship, remarkably, is shared with his disciples. They have a part to play in judging. And we're going to see in a couple of weeks here in Matthew 20, perhaps in light of what the, the disciples have just heard, we're going to see James and John's mom come up to Jesus and say, hey, this 12 thrones thing, hey, this ruling in the kingdom, Hey, can my sons sit to your right and to your left? Can we, can we make that a part of this bargain? Blows your mind that they're, they're moving so quickly to, whoa, kingdom, whoa, I want my spot, my priority, my spot right there. Jesus is talking about the eternal kingdom that's to come. And he's saying, you will have a part to play in it. And then second, Jesus says that everyone, everyone, talking about us, everyone who has left behind something of value in this life will gain something of so much more value. That the reward for following Christ, for enduring hardships, for His name, for making sacrifices with our time, with our finances, with our decisions, and obedience to His Lordship, man, those can feel numerous and constant as we follow Jesus. But Jesus says, stay on the path. They will lead to bountiful rewards. Church, nothing, is aban- nothing abandoned for the sake of Christ will go unnoticed and unrewarded. No sin, no person, no possession that we abandon for the sake of Christ will go unnoticed and unrewarded because our God is a benevolent king, a generous king, who sees our sacrifices and he says, just, just wait. 70, 80 years seems like a long time, but it's not. You have eternal glory, eternal rewards waiting for you. Look at Moses in Hebrews 11, and I leave up on the screen, it says Hebrews 10. That's my mistake. Hebrews 11, verse 24 to 26. It says, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter 
choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Church, let's look to the reward. Why? Why can I say that? Because we have Christ's sure promise that those who endure in this life with their eyes fixed on the eternal reward and not the temporary pleasures will receive a hundredfold. That's Jesus' promise to us. I love, don't you love, love the math here? Jesus doesn't say, well, you'll get two, you'll get double, you'll get 100% back. You will get a hundredfold. Like Jesus, I, didn't, I wasn't even asking for that, but you're going to get a hundredfold back. That's communicating bountiful blessings. And lastly, we see here in verse 30, Jesus says, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Oftentimes, church, our sacrifices won't match the world's values. Faithfully parenting our kids in obedience to God, working hard with integrity for the Lord, especially when no one else is looking and we can get away with a little bit less. Saying no to the things that are pleasurable and the world even calls good because we know it's going to negatively affect our work, walk with Christ and perhaps be a barrier to it. All these things the Lord sees, those sacrifices we make, and the Lord is pleased as we remain steadfast in devotion and he's preparing for you eternal rewards. And their greatest reward, brothers and sisters, the greatest reward is to know Christ and to be known by him. Listen to Jesus' words in John 14 to us, verses 1 through 4. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I could go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And brothers and sisters, we know the way. It's the way of taking up our crosses and following the path of our Savior, humbly, confidently dependent on Him, looking to our guaranteed inheritance that is waiting each one of us. Let's pray. Lord, what hope we have. It just astounds us. You could have just left off these last couple of verses and many other versions and just said, come follow me. Hope it works out. But Jesus, you, you give us hope. You point us to the eternal rewards. It's all going to be worth it. Because you are worth it, Jesus. Jesus, you are worthy of all sacrifices, of all commitments, of all repentance, and worthy of our faith. So lead us on, Lord. If you are touching our hearts in any specific way, if you are putting your finger and identifying anything specifically that we must give up or reprioritize in commitment to you, in the undivided devotion to you, help us to walk the path of confessing that, repenting of it, and putting fresh faith in you. Give us the grace to do that, the power of the Spirit to do that. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.